welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. Good morning. It's great to be with you. (laughs) I'm Father Morgan Reed, and I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Let me pray for us as we begin our time together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, if you have been following uh, recent events in the news, then you've likely read about uh, Peyton Gendron and his um, violent act of anti-black hatred when he drove 200 miles to go to Buffalo and he took the lives of 10 people just for being black who happened to be in the grocery store that day. And it's devastating to hear news like that. It's devastating that that still happens. Um, And as I've been reading different perspectives, articles about it, one of the ones that I found helpful was an article in The Atlantic by um, a priest in the Anglican Church named Esau McCauley. Uh, He's written, it's a really helpful look at the event and his take on it as somebody who is African American and a priest. Um, And one of the things that stood out to me is the way that this particular tragedy forces us to reckon with several ideas. The way that it forces us to think about what forms of white supremacy still exist in our culture and how those things fall short of God's love and plan for humanity, the humanity that's created in his image. It forces us to consider the interconnectedness of different violent acts that are committed against those with black and brown bodies. It forces us to consider issues of mental health and who has access to weapons. It forces us to ask really hard questions about the kind of information that people have access to and how that needs to be restricted for certain people or kinds of information, the ways that it needs to be restricted when we talk about modifying firearms to make them more deadly. And one of the things that a tragedy like this does is it forces us to ask hard questions about how things now don't align with the way that things should be when we pray each day in the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. How do these things not align with that prayer? And I think what's really unfortunate is the way that these things are so politically polarized in our culture. Um, It seems like the church ought to be able to speak with one voice about racially motivated violence. Um, But unfortunately, that's not the case right now. And so one of my prayers is that through prayer and through hard conversations, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church would learn to speak with a united theological voice on some of those things that I just mentioned, which is a process, I realize, but it's a prayer of mine. Um, Tragedy, though, needs to be a springboard for examination for ourselves and our churches, um, for for the values of anthropology that we hold to about what we believe people are created in God's image. As Christians, what do we think about this? So I'm still processing that. I know that you are as well. And, but, but when we consider a tragedy like that, what we can affirm together as Christians is that 
God is at work. God has not abandoned those spaces. He's at work in those places where it feels like his love has left. And it's precisely those places that feel like abandonment that become the places of deepest formation. So in our passage this morning that um, uh, David read from the book of Acts, we find St. Paul, who is confronting a place of abandonment. Um, that a place of abandonment which fell on the heels of a really bright spot of ministry success. He shows us something about what it means to rely on God's help, about how to be formed into the image of God in places where it feels like God's love is left. And it shows us something about what it means to move forward in the love of God for humanity. Last week, um, we also talked about Paul and Barnabas's first missionary trip in Asia Minor, where they moved from Pisidian Antioch in Asia Minor, and because of persecution, they went through to Iconium, and then to Lystra, and then to Derbe, uh, throughout what is the region of Galatia. So when you think of Paul's letter to the Galatians, these are the cities. All of this is going to take place before they go back to Syrian Antioch, from the church that sent them on this original journey. And today, in this passage, they're in the town of Lystra, which is way more rural than Pisidian Antioch. It's a little more metropolitan. And when they're in Lystra, they find a crippled man who has faith. There isn't any mention of preaching in synagogues. There's not really any mention of synagogues in Lystra. And so what we're left to picture in this city, rural city of Lystra is this rural bastion of Gentile folk religion. And so even there, even in this rural place of Gentile folk religion, God is still in the darkest places preparing hearts to meet his grace. So what we see is Saints Paul and Barnabas, they're in the business of discerning where God is at work. And that's what so much of life and ministry is. It is discerning where God is at work. So when they arrive at Lystra, they find somebody there who has experienced God's grace, who has faith, um, however seminal it is in, in the work of God and what he can do. The man has an openness to God, uh, the God who created all things, not just the gods of, of Hellenism. And St. Paul looks at him and he finds faith in this man. And what he does is he says to him, stand up on your feet. And immediately this man who's been crippled from birth miraculously springs up and he starts to walk around. And so imagine those who are watching, who have walked by, who see this man, who know his family, who know his situation, they're watching. And in their mythology, this has cultural echoes of the gods coming to bless a city. And so they mistake these two figures who are working miracles as Zeus and Hermes. His messenger. They decide to bring a sacrifice to appease the God, to thank them for the grace that they've been shown. And they're speaking in their own language, Lyconian, which is why Paul and Barnabas don't understand what they're talking about at first. They don't realize what's happening until the people start bringing oxen with garlands on them to the gates where the temple is for Zeus. And then they realize the error that's about to be made and they speak up. And they tell these people about the living God, the one God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who sustains the life of the world. 
which fits in well with our theme of uh, Rogation Sunday. And I think there's a risk to being honest here with this crowd. Think about it, right? This crowd is enamored with who these people are. They're looking up to them. They're looking for them to meet some needs. And Paul and Barnabas are risking something, to be honest. It's easier to allow these people to remain enamored with the wrong idea of who they are than to disappoint them with, a, with an honest take about how frail they are as human beings. But I think that honesty about our human frailty is actually part of the gospel. Um, that's where God's grace is. We show people the grace of God when, um, what, when we show them what God can do in broken people who are restored by grace. And we invite them into the experience of that grace when we're honest. And in that honesty, I can imagine that Paul and Barnabas probably disappointed a lot of the people that were there. Because if you think about it, they were thinking, wow, Zeus and Hermes thought to visit us. Like, we must be pretty special. And so what they did by telling them, actually, we're not Zeus and Hermes, they sort of crushed the spirit of a lot of people who felt really honored that the gods would come and visit. And even though some people would have felt crushed, others might have seen through their own feelings of frustration and sadness, and they would have actually believed the truth that Paul and Barnabas were saying. And they wouldn't have held on to the shame and resentment and frustration. The goodness of the gospel has that kind of power to upset our values as we move into as we move our alignment from the kingdoms of the world to the kingdom of God. It's an upsetting endeavor, but it's a good endeavor. And it's those who are going to hold on to the resentment, though, and, and disbelieve what Paul and Barnabas are saying, that are going to be the cause of all the trials that Paul is about to face. And I find in this story what I find to be true a lot of the time, which is, on the heels of success, there is often trial. And in this case, Paul has a spiritual success, and it is a great high. He preaches, and some people are probably believing, like, it's a good day. Except that the low that he's about to experience is much lower than the high of the success that he's just experienced. And because the trial is going to be so deeply painful, it's also going to be more formative than the success that he's just had. So it says in verse 19 that there were Jews who came from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. These are the ones that we heard about last week. And they came, they sought after Paul um, to, to chase after him in the same way that Paul had been chasing after Christians early on in Damascus and Syria. Perhaps they were afraid that in this rural Gentile area where they wanted Judaism to have a foothold, the fear was, we don't want that brand of Judaism to have a foothold. And so they follow after Paul. They find him. They drag him out of the city, it says. And then they stone him with stones. I mean, imagine, he's pummeled with rocks so much that he's unconscious. They think he's dead. And they just leave him there. And then it says the disciples gather around him. And somewhat miraculously, I think, the next day, he goes with Barnabas to Derby. It says the next day. Um, so imagine now, this bruised prophet with welts and bruises and open wounds, who's just been stoned, is going into another city to preach the gospel. But it's that moment 
of being stoned to the point of being unconscious and almost dead, that he looks back to several times, even in just the New Testament. I mean, when you read 2 Corinthians 11.24 and the verses following, you read Galatians 6.17, 2 Timothy 3.11. Those passages all come back to this moment of near-death experience. And the suffering here was not wasted. It wasn't a needless act of suffering. It left an indelible mark in the formation of St. Paul's ministry. There is, um, there's a wonderful monk uh, back in the 1500s that many of you may have heard of named Ignatius of Loyola. And he's the founder of the Jesuit order in the Catholic Church. And in his writings, what he describes are two ways that God comes to us. One of those ways he labels as consolations. Doesn't just mean that you're happy, but in, in moments of co- in, in a state of consolation, there is this experience of God's active presence moving towards us. We we can experience it. We know it, and we experience growth of love and faith and hope and mercy. But he also argues that beyond consolations, God also comes to us in our desolations. And there are states of desolation where it feels like God's love and the experience of God's active presence in the world is moving away from us. So being in a state of desolation is often characterized by being turned in on ourselves or being driven down into negative feelings of despair, being cut off from community, making us want to give up on those things that we really hold to be valuable, being consumed with the tyranny of the urgent And being drained of energy. Those are just some of the ways we can identify we are in a state of desolation. And knowing and being able to name that we are in a state of desolation is often the first step to receiving God's grace in our weakness. Now, have you ever had the experience of trying to follow Jesus and things just really aren't working out the way that you thought they were going to? Anybody? No, maybe just me. Um, you know, you're following Jesus and you thought, man, I thought this was going to be better than the way things are right now. Like, I thought my career was going to be different than it is right now. I thought I was going to be more successful than I am right now. I thought our housing situation would be different than it is right now. I thought my marriage was going to be different than it is right now. I thought my kids were going to be way more well-behaved than they are right now. You know, I thought my health was going to be much better than it is right now. And yet, we keep running into those limits. Like running into a brick wall that we just can't get past. And yet, it's, I don't want to mistakenly equate um, experiences of unmet expectations and, and, and possibly just inconveniences with deep physical uh, and emotional traumatic experiences of persecution. They're not the same, but I do think that in the experience of following Jesus, we can expect that God is going to place limits on us um, in places where we consider certain ideas about success. But I think those limits are sacramental. Uh, I think they are a place of God's grace. Uh, Because what they do is they turn our gaze away from the outcomes that we're craving And they turn our gaze towards the process of where God's moving towards us. Takes us from result to a process kind of orientation. 
And, it, and those places are what shape us and our affections more into the image of Jesus and into the affections of what God loves. So, St. Paul doesn't go back to Syria and Antioch there and complain about what's happening to his sending church, kind of going like, you know, I, I, you never warned me that this was going to happen. Like, he doesn't do that. He just, he keeps going with a clear sense of God's call. And what really impresses me is not just that he keeps going, but that sort of fearlessly he comes back to those places that were the most deeply wounding for him. And sometimes I sit and I wonder when I look at the D.C. area about how people choose to walk in their woundedness with blinders on. And, and I remember speaking to somebody who, by all accounts, was really successful. And when they started recounting to me parts of their story from growing up or even just sort of recent history... I asked them if they had thought about seeing somebody, to, uh, like a counselor, to talk about some of the things that they were sharing with me. And they said that they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to make time for that because they have learned how to function right now. And that was terrifying. They were afraid that if they had to peer into those places that they were sharing, that it would make them weak. Uh, and it would change the way that they had learned how to function. And so I totally appreciate how scary that is, because that is scary. I mean, you're reopening a wound after you've already reestablished a new normal. And we also have to do those kinds of things wisely, and we've got to do them slowly. We have to do them with good counsel. Um, but the point is that when God does promise to rescue his people from affliction, he doesn't do it without testing them. And, and he does it by blessing them with grace to endure in trials. Just like Second Peter 1 talks about, it says that perseverance leads to godliness. Godliness does not come without the experience of trial. So part of growing into an emotionally and spiritually mature disciple of Jesus is walking through our wounded places and learning how to recognize those places as being a state of desolation or a kind of desolation and then learning to pray for the Lord's help in those spaces in community. Notice then that St. Paul goes back to Lystra. And he goes back to Iconium. He goes back to Pisidian Antioch. And despite the efforts of all of those who had tried to stone him, God was doing something. God had rescued a people to the glory of his name. There were Jews and Gentiles who were coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah. And God was making Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, into a people who would proclaim the excellencies of the God who called them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. God had been doing that while Paul kept going. So when he went back, there were disciples there, and he was called to strengthen their resolve in those places, those who were following Jesus. And then having gone back to those places of hurt, he saw what God had done, um, where he had only been experiencing pain and sorrow. And so he encourages them and he implores them to continue in that faith. And there would be those who try and derail them, as you read about in the letter to the Galatians, which is probably written to these churches. And he warned them that it was through many tribulations that they would enter the kingdom of God. And then the final thing that he does is he appoints elders 
to govern this Jesus movement that he'd been preaching about in those cities. And he does it with fasting and with prayer. And he commits the leaders and those churches to God's care. He doesn't hold on to them. And the church then grows through trial. It reminds me that um, it's through trial that, and, and many trials that the followers of Jesus uh, enter the kingdom of God. We haven't done anything wrong when we experience trial or suffering. Right? So if you're, if you're sitting there wondering, like, why am I going through this? The answer is not, not usually uh, because of the sin that I've done, but because of what God wants to do in the experience and the process of this. And what it does is it prepares us to meet God's grace in a fresh way. Suffering comes in many ways. Suffering comes from the hands of well-intentioned people who cause controversy. It, it can come through people with evil intent who seek to harm other people, uh, who seek their own well-being at the expense of other people. Suffering can come in many forms. And in that place of pain, there's a genuine invitation to experience the grace of, of God in the wounds of Jesus, who was wounded for our transgressions. And that's where we find our story being resituated in God's plan to save a people. And so, like Paul, we have to be honest, even to the extent that we risk disappointing other people or offending them. We need to face trials in a way that's learning how to be dependent on the God who helps us with a disposition to forgive uh, and a reliance on the ability of God to take vengeance and, and not the reliance on ourselves to take up vengeance at our own hand. And we need to recognize those areas of desolation, um, that those places of deep wounding and work through them with the help of the Holy Spirit, with wise counsel and community um, and, and with prayer. We need to recognize those places of wounding as sources of God's grace. Let me pray for us. Oh, Almighty God, you pour out on all who desire it the spirit of grace and of supplication. Deliver us when we draw near to you from coldness of heart and wanderings of mind, that with steadfast thoughts and kindled affections, we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.